0: Hey, welcome back, listening audience. Thanks again for downloading the Noggin Notes podcast. As always, we are humbled by your listenership, and we appreciate it. Noggin Notes, we believe, is the only podcast that aims to educate and enrich your noggin in all matters of wellness, chiefly mental wellness, but across spirituality, psychology, emotional functioning, neurochemistry, and all matters of society that might impact you and your well-being. So We do that by interviewing people and bringing them on the show, and we try to spread cheer and insight and goodwill, and we try to encourage people to do things in their communities that maybe are going on in other communities. Our guests this week are Jay Zimmerman and Trey Miller. Both are veterans of the U.S. military, of a couple of different branches, and they've got their stories to share about their own mental uh, health struggles and achievements and what they're doing to help others. And I think you're going to find it really enriching. I know I did. It's one of the longest interviews I've done. I'm very proud to know both gentlemen and um, they're they're going to be awesome. So uh, I'm not going to talk much more about them. They'll talk plenty. As for our sponsors, as always, Zephyr Wellness, which is the company that I co-own in Reno, Nevada and Sparks, Nevada. We do have two locations to serve you, but obviously we're always in telehealth as well. Um, since the pandemic... And ongoing thereafter, we offer telehealth services, and we couldn't be prouder to do it. Check out ZephyrWellness.org. Take most major insurances. And uh, if we don't have your insurance on file, uh, we're not in network. We have awesome graduate practicum students who can help you out at a very nominal fee. And we're really proud of that program, too. Also, follow us on the Instagram and the Twitter and the Facebook. And subscribe to us on the YouTube. And you can get lots more content like this to help you make your life a little smoother. Our other sponsor is Audible. We're thankful to Audible, and it's very expansive reach of audio content. It's really, truly unmatched. If you go to audibletrial.com slash nogginnotes, you can get a free 30-day trial complete with a free download. Um, You help yourself out because you're expanding your knowledge base, and you help us out, and you're helping out Audible. Because with every dollar you spend, they get to buy more books and so on and so forth. And that's how it all works. So audibletrial.com slash nogginnotes. Get your free 30-day trial. Cancel any Keep the free download that you get. audibletrial.com slash nogginnotes. They tell us to say that three times because apparently it sticks after that. So thanks for downloading us on the interwebs. Um, enjoy the podcast. Enjoy my interview with Jay and Trey. Have a wonderful day. Well, on Naga Notes, we are blessed to have a couple of really cool guests who are both veterans of the military, Jay Zimmerman, uh, Jason, if you will, and Trey Miller, and they both do really cool work in the veteran community and in advocacy, and they have stories to tell themselves about uh, mental wellness and how it's very complex uh, with regard to the veteran community. And, um, it's, it's, it's very different from people who, uh, I guess just walk the street, you know, running their normal lives and daily jobs. Um, and I, and I've invited them on to explain some of that stuff. So I guess we start with some bios. Uh, if you want to do like the the verbal resume, uh, Jay, you're on my screen. Trey's, Trey's not a video, so he gets relegated to second fiddle. Um, Jay, explain who you are, what you do, and uh, how you came to be in my circle, if you will. All right. Uh, Jay
1: Zimmerman, um, I am a certified peer counselor and a certified psychosocial rehabilitation practitioner. Lots of these letters that really just mean um, I'm somebody that, you know, when I came out of the service, um, I served in the United States Army as a combat medic with 1st uh, of the 505th Parachute Infantry, um, 97 to late 04, early 05. Um, when I first came out of the service, all those letters just mean I struggled myself to kind of reacclimate um, back into society um, to what people would call being like the norm. Um, so um, after that time in the service, kind of not knowing where I wanted to be or what I wanted to do, um, the VA presented me with this opportunity to kind of go back and and be in this role of um, sharing what helps me to maintain wellness and to stay well with other veterans um, who are oftentimes just like I was hesitant to come into treatment for a variety of reasons, Um, you know, but we, we know that there's more to recovery than just, you know, meds, therapy and, Um, It's a combination of a lot of things, and that's kind of what I do. Um, I'm a huge advocate in the world of uh, suicide prevention, uh, particularly as it pertains to lethal means.
0: I appreciate that. And um, you and I connected because we met at a conference. It was a suicide prevention conference specifically focused on lethal means, specifically focused on firearms, in san francisco and i was there as a representative of walk the talk america which uh the, the listeners of this podcast have heard me uh discuss before and um i think your story is really cool because i i love that you have the background to talk about your own journey but also that you attend to the holistic response to um distress right it's not it's not just medicine it's not just professional talk therapy. There's, there's a variety of ways of doing that, and you, and you do that in your professional life. Um, so thank you. Uh, Trey, hello.
2: What's going on? Uh, yeah, I'm Trey Miller. I'm um, former Marine, got out in 1998, spent some time overseas uh, in some different places. I was with a unit called First Rig, and it was a surveillance reconnaissance intelligence group, And uh, we kind of did some cool stuff here and there, spent some time over in Eastern Africa and some other places Um, We can talk. Well, I guess we can talk about that. I was in Somalia, spent some time in in, uh, Korea and uh, obviously stationed over in Okinawa for over a year and then back at Camp Pendleton. And yeah, it was interesting because we were talking about kind of our background, and I remember being right out of school. I was 19 years old from Dallas, Texas, and checked into my first unit in November. They said, oh, by the way, your, your unit's in workup, and y'all are heading out in January. And uh, so I didn't really have time to understand what was going on, and I didn't understand the reality of uh, when, you, when you live in suburbia and you are heading to Mogadishu, And you don't know what's getting ready to happen. You don't understand what happens when you're there. And I remember um, my captain on the flight was basically saying, um, you know, there's gonna be some things that you're gonna see that aren't gonna make sense to you. They they use women and children as shields. Um, There's gonna be 12 year olds with AKs. And if you, our our morals tell us not to pull a trigger. And if you don't, your buddies and your brothers, Uh, might get hurt and so that was the beginning of kind of holy cow this is real. I got out in 98 and I work a normal uh, kind of a job for the last long time uh, that pays the bills but about three years ago I started up a YouTube channel uh, called Ghost Tactical. We do a lot of firearms, a lot of training. I still train all the time all over the country Um, and that turned into a podcast called the Armed Citizen Podcast where We have a lot of guests and we talk guns and and the community and politics and pretty much anything and everything you can uh, talk about. But a large portion of my mission with my channel and podcast is military. So I like to get a lot of veterans on and all that. So, uh, how we met, Jake, we met uh, through Michael Sedini and Walk the Talk America. You were at Shot Show uh, this past January. And we met down in the dungeon, I believe, of Shot Show. And Mike's a great friend of mine. And, um, you've been i've been trying to help him out you know uh loosely not not official capacity with Walk the Talk America for a couple of years but Mike's a great guy and and uh I do what I can to help him out
0: Walk the Talk America is amazing and I don't want this particular conversation to be about that because I've had Mike on before uh about WTTA and I, I'm a board member and it's great um, but I do want to tie this back to how Mike met Jay, which was at a, um, there was some sort of council in Washington, D.C. They put, they pulled a bunch of people together where you and Mike met each other. And he has a funny story about that where he was like, I'm invited to be the gun guy. And and you're like, no, I'm the gun guy or something. Tell that story, Jay. Um. March of
1: last year, the president signed an executive order. Um, just like everything in the government, it's an acronym, and it's long, and I'm not going to try to get it correct. But basically, it's PREVENTS, um, and it's a, basically a, a group of people came together um, to talk specifically about the epidemic of um, suicide in America uh, Mike and I both wound up on the lethal means uh part of that roadmap, like how to develop a plan to address uh the mental health needs and like I was coming to it from mental health and lethal means. He's from lethal means um we were sitting beside each other in an office in the Eisenhower building or wherever' outside the White house um and it kind of, I think, dawned on us both about the same time that, you know, we were probably the only two A guys in the room um, because we just looked at each other and she's like, you're, you're you're for it, right? And I'm like, yeah, you're for it. And he kind of shared with me a little bit of his background. I shared with him a little bit of my background. And, um, yeah, we were like the two voices in the room, you know, for gun rights.
0: It's a pretty cool story because the uh the, the gun rights movement doesn't get a lot of traction in the mental health community, and that's the point of walk the talk america uh it's It's to bring the two quote unquote sides together as if there should be sides right like um so there's there's gun owners and then there's mental health advocates, and every time um, tragedy happens blame shifting occurs uh, one side points to the other and says it's your fault and then uh, nothing happens and and nothing moves forward and so Walk the Talk America is trying to move through that and so what you guys were involved in is is not necessarily like a a panel to prevent all violent deaths from guns but it was su- specifically suicide prevented uh, suicide prevention oriented I should say and the idea is that um, firearms owners need to be mindful of safe storage their own mental wellness uh, seeking treatment when it's when it's required and so on and so forth and um, and that and that's something that has not long been discussed within the firearms community and some of that firearms community includes veterans which is why I'm having you guys on this podcast because I as a mental health practitioner uh, I can reasonably acknowledge that most of us in the mental health community don't understand the veteran perspective on this. And I would like to know more. And I think our, our listeners who are not all mental health practitioners, but just um, random people in the community. And, and we are international as it turns out. Um, my, my partner in Naga Notes is in Cambodia and I've interviewed people from across the, the globe. Um, there are people across the world who all presumably are in mental are health right Near it, and will eventually rub elbows as somebody who served in their country's military service and I think we would do well to understand that there's a different dynamic going on where there's added pressures where you deploy you you commit, you you do all this training, uh, the the gun is made part of your job and in, in so much the, the part of your identity that that when you get out it's almost like, Oh, you got to set this aside now, man. Like that's, that's not you anymore. Um, And, and you're helping with that. When, when veterans discharge and you're working with peer services and whatnot. Um, And I want, I want Jay to talk a little bit about how he helps people transition, you know, and, and do the, what's a, what's clearly presented as a binary term. It's Like you're either for this or you're for that. Um, and you're helping them to to reconcile that. And then Trey, I want you to talk about what you're doing with the Armed Citizen podcast, um, insofar as helping gun owners acknowledge that they need to to be safe and be be mentally sound as well. So I'll let you guys just like kind of talk back and forth here, but that's that's my way of teeing it up. Um, I don't know if Trey wants to go first or wants me to take a <laughs> no, shot. Never. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. Ter- terrible podcast host, uh <laughs> not nominating somebody.
1: No, 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 man. It's just fine. Um really, you know, and and I come at everything, I don't want to claim to be like the end all expert on veterans. Um, as I think Trey would acknowledge, and most every veteran would acknowledge, there's such a wide array of um jobs within the military um, each person's familiarity with firearms is different. Um, and so therefore their level of identity surrounding that firearm is going to be different. So what I can really do is, is just speak to to my identity of surrounding firearms, where I come from, why it is such an important thing for me. Um, and why it's also an important thing for me to take what I've learned and relay to other veterans in encouraging them to seek mental health. Um, I am from, like, born and bred in rural Appalachia. So, you know, long before I went in the military, you know, I've probably told this story in San Francisco, but, you know, where I am from, we look forward to getting our first firearm before we even think about a driver's license.
0: Dude, do, uh, do us a favor and tell, tell the listening audience what Appalachia is if they're not from, you know, West Virginia or Tennessee okay, that, or Virginia. That's <laughs> the, Pennsylvania
1: the very well Appalachian, you know, the mountain chain runs from Maine to Atlanta or sorry, Georgia area. Um, I don't know exactly where it is. Don't know exactly where it starts, but I am right in the middle of um, the border of Tennessee, North Carolina and Virginia. Um, put a pin in those three and I'm right there. Um, very rural, very isolated. Um, you know, we are, really not well off. Uh, most people aren't well off as far as like socioeconomics. Uh, it's a, a generally a poor population. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, you know, like for us, firearms growing up are a big deal. Um, I know people that when the factory shut down, when the mines shut down, like basically we, we have to rely on those firearms as tools, um, tools for putting food in the freezer to get through the winter. Um, and those are the first kind of skills that you learn. But we're also taught safety from an early age, like how to manage those firearms. Um, you know, everybody in my state is required to take a hunter safety course, how to cross a fence, you know, um, proper storage, you know, all the, the fundamentals assume that every firearm that you come across is loaded, never point a weapon at somebody loaded or unloaded um, unless you intend to, to use it. Know what is behind your target. Um basically just all the fundamentals of firearm safety. Now, you take that forward, for instance, um, when Trey was giving his intro, it's all about his captain telling him things on the plane. Um, My first deployment, um, being from the buckle of the Bible belt here, um, I was a paramedic certified when I went into the military and trained with an infantry unit, got on a plane, and kind of got some of the same speech that Trey got, and moved up front to sit by the chaplain and spent about 16 hours on a plane picking his brain. Like, how do I reconcile the fact that my job is to save lives, but you're telling me that I'm also going to have to potentially send around downrange and take a life? Um, how do I wrap that around my upbringing, my training, the whole nine yards? Um, so come to find out, you know, medic in the infantry, you're, you're just a, a medic with a gun. Uh, you're still a a grunt. You know, I I don't claim to be an infantry guy, but all my infantry buddies I serve with, you know, they're like, Hey, you're, you're one of us doc. Don't worry about it. Um, fast forward to that. You get out of the military, you come back home. Um, you're struggling with mental health and you hear all these things. Um, basically the majority of your life, you know, when stuff happens in the news, like it's, Oh man, mental illness, mental illness. I wonder if that guy was in treatment. Um, If he was in treatment, he shouldn't have had a firearm. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, I I spent like eight years, you know, where that firearm was a weapon. Um, but it was also a tool, just like Trey said, that was a tool to keep me safe, to keep my buddies safe, uh, to make sure that we all got back home. And now you're telling me to put my tools away. And that was one of the tools that I also use to maintain wellness. Like when I need to blow off steam when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I go to the range. I'll go, take a couple of boxes of shells and, and just go shoot. It relieves so much stress. Um, But I'm seeing on the news that like, if you go for treatment, you shouldn't have that firearm. You shouldn't have that weapon. And so I found myself at a place again, trying to reconcile uh, mixed messaging. Like I was capable of maintaining that safely while in the military, but now the the things I'm hearing and, and I don't want to get into politics or media, but that's where the messages are coming from. Like, Oh, you shouldn't, should, shouldn't have that. Um, and so I, I work really hard with veterans that I see transitioning that dealt with that same kind of thing about education is the first key. It's like we are educated on, on all the ins and outs of the military and, and how to maintain our, our firearms, our weapons, um, keeping our buddies safe, all that good stuff. Like we have to learn how to keep ourselves safe, but we also need to learn how to do that and still maintain our rights. Um, and, and so that's kind of the, one of the ways that I use to bridge with folks is just to dispel some of that myth that as a mental health worker, you know, my goal of getting them into treatment is to either a create a list or b take their firearm from them in some shape, form, or fashion. And you know, I just use my own experiences of saying, like, look, guys, you know, I'm still a concealed carry. Holder for the state of Tennessee, um, firearms instructor for my local gun club, and have been in treatment for PTSD. Um, the the fact that you go for treatment, whether it's PTSD, depression, where doesn't automatically mean your rights are, are taken, your firearms are going to be taken and, and I think that's the message that we've got to get across and you talked about that divide when something happens, I think we spend too much time talking about. Like I'm over here and I'm so like, you'll pry my gun from my cold dead hand. And then on the other side, we've got us, those of us in mental health. that are like, Whoa, you know, we, we recall when we hear that someone with a mental health diagnosis may have a firearm. We, we can't be fixed in those positions. We got to figure out all the stuff that we agree on that's in the middle as a mental health professional, as a veteran, as a human being, Suicide, the thought, I mean, I've lost friends after I got out of the service to suicide. And that was harder on me than losing guys while we were deployed. Um, and and I, I think no matter where you stand, like every gun owner I know is appalled by suicide. Um, hates, you know, that we can't do more. How do we do more? And I think that the first place we've got to start to do, or the first thing we've got to start to do is come out of our trenches and meet in the middle and talk about all the things we agree on and leave the things that we don't agree on that we'll probably never agree on in our trenches.
0: Well, uh, that concludes our podcast for today. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I could Trey, Yeah. <laughs> no, Trey go.
2: Yeah. Ironically, my story is almost a complete opposite of Jay's when it comes to firearms I grew up in Dallas, and everyone thinks that uh, if you're from Texas, that you wear cowboy boots, you have a horse, and you shoot guns all the time. And um, I did own cowboy boots, I uh, did not have a horse. I had a Mustang, but it was a car, not a not a horse. Um, but the only, basically the only experience I had with firearms until I joined the Marine Corps was at my buddy's ranch who had horses, but we'd shoot snakes or cans or something with old twenty two. but I didn't know anything about them. I wasn't a firearm. Not that I was against them. I just didn't have any experience. My parents were not firearm people, so I was never really around them until I joined the Marine Corps. And second stage of boot camp, you'd go up to uh, Camp Pendleton, and they teach you how to shoot and all that. and uh, I remember pulling the, the trigger for the first time and, and someone just kind of awoke in me. And I was like, Oh, I get it. And this is, this was fun. And, and it just kind of clicked. And I was like, okay, I was, I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. I was kind of scared. And I, at the time I didn't realize that the two, two, three rounder, the five, five, six, what we used, wasn't this enormous projectile. It wasn't this, this thing that's going to reach out that 2000 yards and, 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 touch you. But uh I was nervous because I had never held an M16A2, and I was like, oh, what is, you know, and it was awesome, and then you get to learn to shoot uh, some handguns, uh, the M9. Before we went overseas, I had to do foreign weapons training, so I got introduced to the 47s and the 74s and learned how those went, and I was hooked, and it was interesting, and, um, but when it comes to the firearm side of mental health, you know, on the veteran side of things, I remember kind of going back to my initial story being 19 years old, basically straight out of schooling and told that you've got two months to work up and you guys are heading out. And so you're training and you're training basically maybe 18, 19 hours a day for two months. I'm trying to catch up and you've got, I'm, I'm with guys that were in Desert Storm and these guys are, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like this, this kid from Dallas and, and so I'm just trying to keep my head down and uh, move quickly and learn and absorb like a sponge, and you and you get to a place and video games doesn't do it justice. I can put it to you that way. You, If you think it's like Call of Duty, then you're not going to last very long. And I'll say this, and this is one of those things where I get asked a lot. You know, first time when you heard um, an AK go off in real life, and and and, and if you've never heard an AK-47 full auto. It is a completely different sound than you've ever heard. Um, if you've never been around firearms at a night a, and a, a full auto AK-47, it, it's it, it'll get you. And anyone that says that they're not scared the first time um, is either lying or or crazy, and maybe both. I don't know. But I, I'm not going to lie. I was I was terrified. And I'll, I'm free to admit that. I have no quarrels admitting that I was absolutely terrified. But the good thing about it was, is once again, I was so young with zero experience. And I'm basically told to do a job. So mentally at the time, I was just doing a job. I was doing exactly what I was trained to do and nothing more, nothing less. And if one of my corporals or sergeants told me to do this, I was a PFC, an E two. Roger that, sergeant. You know, Roger that, corporal. Yes, sir. I'm on it. You know, and and you just did it. And and we left there, went to Korea on the way back to Okinawa, where we were based out of. Uh, went back to Korea, stopped there for a couple of days to do some interesting things. Um, and then went to SEER training over at, at Camp Fuji at Mount Fuji, Japan, which is basically uh, survival school, if you want to call it that. And, and I'm sure both of you guys are know what SEER is. But so at this point, I'm 19 years old and I'm just getting like everything just thrown at me. And I don't, I, I, it's hard for me to decipher. I will say that after all of that, I learned very quickly how to compartmentalize the rest of my life. And I, I still hold that today that I'm able to put different scenarios and different things into certain sections of my brain to either forget about them or to deal with them or to just if nothing else organize them and when i when I got back and I, and i got and I got out I, I I left the Marine Corps with a bitter taste on my mouth I had something uh I had a couple issues with some people towards the end of my uh enlistment that kind of it took me a while to get back into the, the the love of the Marine Corps. Um, But when I started kind of shooting competitively and all of that, I'm still a huge proponent of concealed carry. Uh, That's one of my biggest missions. I think that we need to be our own uh, personal warriors. We have to be our own first responders to a certain extent that um, an everyday warrior is so important to the grand scheme of things. And hearing these horror stories about, I was never really, I don't know how to put this, I was really never I was two way ignorant. I was never anti I mean, I've never been anti two way, but I was two way ignorant. I just like guns and I didn't really understand the politics of it. And when you start hearing um, things that happened in like 2012 and, and, and we don't need to talk about that, but, you know, a, a terrible tragedies that happened at these schools and all of that you start hearing the bad side of what people think of gun owners. And so the armed citizen podcast has really turned into breaking down stigmas of what the general public think of us as gun owners and let them know that, Hey, we're just normal everyday people. We have normal jobs. We coach little league. We go to church with you. We're the guys cooking the burgers at the uh, cookouts on, on 4th of July and all of that. And you may not have known for the last 10 years that, and this happened to me, actually. You know, my, the first 10 years that I was here, you know, very few people knew that I carried. I, I don't go around, hey, I, I, I'm a gun guy and I'm concealed carrying. I, I don't want anyone to know that. Sometimes it's a tactical advantage sometimes. But as I started doing the YouTube and the podcasting and all of that stuff, started doing competitive shooting, people started realizing, oh, he's a gun guy. And you coached my daughter in softball did you have a gun on? No, you know, no, I didn't have a gun on the, on the softball field, you know, but they just assumed that we're these crazy tin foil hat wearing, you know, people that are just waiting to overthrow the government. I guess that's what a lot of people think they are, we are. And so that was the whole purpose is to, for me to explain people that, we're just normal everyday people that like to exercise our Second Amendment rights. We enjoy guns, but like Jay was saying, everything that most of us—I would say that 98% of us, 99.9% of us, almost—everything we do is safety. Everything we do is understanding that we're trying to keep other people, not just ourselves, safe. And we are the probably the the most responsible citizens there are because. We don't just re- responsible for driving, but we're responsible for carrying a firearm. We do. We take great pride in that, and we're hoping that people understand that just because you just found out that I carry a gun, now you won't talk to me. But we were best friends ten years ago when you didn't think I carried a gun, and that's where it is. And as far as the mental, I'm trying to tie this in. I'm sorry. Uh, as sure, far yeah, as the,
0: we'll we'll eventually tie it in anyway. It's okay.
2: Yeah. As far as the mental health side of things, I think that uh, what got me is obviously being around a lot of vets and and telling stories and all of that. And you you hear some people have it less than others. Some people, um, I think that honest to God, um, I think that I was too young and ignorant to understand what I was doing. And so I, my wife said that there were patches when I first got out that she was everything. Okay. I don't, I don't ever remember that. I just remember um, the transition from military to civilian. And I didn't realize possibly that transition. Jake can talk about that more, but, you know, I didn't realize there was maybe some issues for a, a brief time, but obviously my, my horror, my darkness, um, is definitely not as deep or as dark as other people. And when I talking to, you know, people that I've met through the gun community, not just buddies of mine that were in my team or unit, but just general uh, and general veterans, especially people, people that are, you know, that got in and served post nine eleven, because they fought a different warfare than I had to. We never had to worry about IEDs. We never had to worry about certain things that they're going through. Uh, they're literally driving down a road every day not knowing if they're going to make it. You know, you never know. And hearing their stories when they come back. And the interesting thing is the one that hit me was a guy said that, you know, I, I spent every second of my time trying to survive. And, and and Jay knows this, but most of us, when we're over somewhere, we're not trying to rack up kill counts. We're not trying to do anything that we're trying to get home. And let's be honest, we're doing everything we can to get home. And a lot of these guys and gals, um, they spend every day for nine months doing everything they can to get home. And when they get home, they don't know how to be there. Whether it's from family or friends, they just don't know how to, to live in a, non chaotic world. And and for a lot of those guys, the chaos of war, the fog of war is what's calming to them. And they don't know how to transition into regular everyday life. And, and that's kind of uh, an interesting side that I take it uh, for the podcast and and all that stuff
0: you bring up an interesting point there about the the transition from chaos into normalcy because i think as uh family therapists we we try to encourage um rejecting the idea that chaos is the normalcy right and so for somebody returning home from that crazy fog of of war and and all the the stuff that comes with it um readjusting is really really challenging. And I think if I'm going to try to sculpt this podcast in some way to our, to our listenership, it's, it's going to be to help understand the the veteran community as they, as they reemerge. Right. So like whether you're a clinician listening or whether you're just a random citizen, who's curious about mental health, and we happen to be having this particular topic. Um, the important thing is to understand that it's, a, it's a different experience. Uh, when you 've gone and and been asked to take another human life or many human lives as a matter of job uh that that very few of us can can even conceptualize and how do we how do we bring that back in and and meet you where you are when you reemerge into regular citizenry i guess I mean
1: one of the things that kind of strikes me with with what you're saying there um i have i've had this conversation jeez i don't even know how many times over the years like past 15 years um guys will come back and they'll say it just doesn't feel right what i'm doing now doesn't feel and they use the word normal um you know and my line has always been like first of all I don't, nobody wants to be normal. Normal, normal is boring, right? right and what, right. If, what, what is normal? Um, but part of the way that I have tried to help folks understand this is, is really a lot of what you were saying there. Um, which, oh, sorry Good dog. That. Good dog. Yeah. Good which is, you know, when you live in a chaotic state for an extended period of time um, and then you come home and, and folks are like, flip that switch and we're going to go from like chaos to totally calm, whatever you want. You know, you go to the grocery store, you get anything you want. I, I mean, I looked forward to care packages that came with stale homemade treats and like a hundred degree, a hundred degree sodas packed in them that maybe hadn't exploded. Cause those were things that I couldn't get. Um, so you when you go me? from, when you go from this chaotic state all the time to this, um, totally calm, um, you've become so used to chaos that chaos is normal for you. Um, And when we ask people to step away from anything that has become their norm and transition to something different, it's uncomfortable as all get out. And the challenge is sticking through that discomfort until the new situation begins to feel as normal as the chaos because I think Trey would probably agree with me the first few days, weeks, whatever that you're on the ground, it doesn't feel normal. I mean, I remember the first time, like, like Trey said, you hear an AK go off, and then you realize, man, the the dirt is popping beside my feet. Or you hear something whiz by your head, and you're like, I got to get down. That does not feel normal at first. Over time, that becomes part of everyday life. So we become accustomed to the chaos. We come back and they're like, I mean, the most chaotic thing I've got right now is, you know, two teenage daughters and a house full of dogs. You know, um, how am I going to get somebody to band camp in the morning when I've got to get to work? I mean, that's, that's chaos now. But, you know, I mean, I see people sweating that and I'm like, man you're sweating that <laughs> you know I, I remember sweating like like trey said like i hope i don't blow up today um i hope we get from point a to point b and nobody dies
2: yeah i i think that kind of to add on what jay was saying is the coming home and i think that you're more involved in the transition so you kind of see the after effects but those first few days especially when you come home even if you're not transitioning out you're still in but you're you you come home for two weeks or 30 days or whatever they're going to give you to stay home for a little bit to kind of decompress, if you will. Um, The interesting thing is, is not what you have to deal with. It's reliving what you deal with, with family and friends. They all want to hear the war stories. They want to know. And and it's not that they want to hear this, that, the other, a lot of times it's your wife, it's your mother and your dad that just want to know hey, you've been gone and I'd
0: like to kind
2: of know what, you know, what happened, not because... They're just
0: trying to identify. They're just trying to reconnect.
2: Exactly. They're trying to reconnect, but they're also saying, hey, you know, if you tell me, maybe it will help you get through it all. Right. And the problem is, is we live that stuff. The last thing a lot of people want to do is now talk about it. And so there becomes a friction between that, veteran and the family whether it's wife or parents or whatever because now you just want to forget or you just want to move on for a few days. you don't even want to think about it for a few days but all you hear are questions and i think that that probably doesn't help if i had to imagine
0: is is it possible just to move on just to forget because i hear you know earlier trey you were talking about compartmentalizing and that's something that we actually teach and even in counselor school, we'd say, you know, compartmentalize what you hear from your clients, uh, set it aside, um, don't don't bring it home with you, all that stuff. Like it, it deserves its own space. And, there, and there's legitimacy to that where you say like, all right, I I can deal with this thing and I'm going to set it aside and I'm not going to deal with it again. But that acknowledges that you're actually embracing it you're owning it. You're moving on as opposed to the compartmentalizing that I think most society teaches, which is just block it out, ignore it, but it still lurks in your unconscious and you haven't actually dealt with it. I'm wondering, is it worth what you're saying where it's like, Hey, let's, let's just like, I don't want to talk about that right now, babe. I want to, I want to be present with you and the kids and the dog and tend to the garden. And then Maybe later I'll deal with this thing that I that I carried for the last eighteen months or whatever. Like, is there legitimacy to that, or like, how do how do how do you guys get trained to process this stuff?
2: I think <laughs> that's the issue. Is I don't think that there is. I think that every person is going to deal with it how they deal with it. And I think um, and like I said, I, I've been fortunate in my life to be able to to compartmentalize things and um, be relatively mentally strong. I guess because um, it's not that you put it in a box and you forget about it. You put it in a box and you deal with it when the time is right, when you need to. And then you have other points in your life where you're worried about family. You're worried about getting kids to dance. You're getting worried about whatever. And I just tried when I say, comp- I try not to mix many boxes together. Um, that, that sounds, maybe it sounds weird, but that's kind of how my mind works is, um, I I might have 10 things going on, but only four of them are ever going to mix match. Um, I try to keep some things separate from others. I'll deal with everything when I can. But when when you're talk about coming home, I think a lot of it comes down to kind of what you're saying. Some people won't ever deal with it. And that's what we're trying to talk about. There are people that either won't ever deal with it or don't know how to ever deal with it. And maybe that's just the 2%, but that 2% is is so fragile in our community that I wish, this is what we're talking about, I wish there was ways that I knew to help, I, not just identify, but help them on a regular basis because I think where a lot of it comes down to is most, most veterans feel that they are too proud, they're too macho, it is not manly to ask for help or to show any signs of weakness whatsoever. We literally in the Marine Corps have a slogan that says that pain is weakness leaving the body. And so that's kind of what it is. And, and, and we've all been on, the three of us have been on phone conversations in the last couple of weeks that we've talked about how do we break those stigmas down? How do we let people know that, dude, it's okay? It's okay to ask for help, and and that's kind of where I am, and I'm sure Jay probably has a lot more. He's dealt with the – both of you guys have dealt with the clinical and all of that stuff much more than I have. Um, But for the veteran side of things, I I think a lot of it is just pride. I think too many people have the pride they don't want to deal with it because if they deal with it, they have to admit that they are not an angel anymore. Their innocence has been taken from them.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that like like pain is uh, weakness leaving the body. I would say that's like pain is actually ego leaving the body because um, neurologically we know that uh, pain is probably loosely associated with sadness, uh, shame maybe. And that's a neurological function that we can't avoid because research through Carol Izzard's work and so forth has suggested that we don't have control over whether or not we feel an emotion. We have control over how much and how long we feel it. But there's this um, undergirded identity that you're not supposed to feel emotion. And that's not appropriate at all. And and when that happens, what you've got is a, a neurological wrestling of sorts where your brain is trying to not acknowledge the very natural response to environment, which says, holy crap, I just took a guy's life. Um, that's sad and I might be ashamed because it conflicts with my values and I have a job to do. And I sign on like there's all these like conflicting ideological beliefs, right? And if you can't reconcile those beliefs um, neurologically to make the brain get satisfied, then you end up carrying through into life. This like repeated cortisol injection or this, this, uh, this, uh, dopamine injection or this norepinephrine in- injection into your body as you as you keep having bad dreams and you keep reflecting on it and it never actually resolves because you haven 't logically concluded through a belief system that what you did was okay or justifiable or however it works out and then we end up with guys who are and gals um, who take their own lives because they can 't satisfy or reconcile. This conflict of belief systems, and that, and I think that's where what that's where the neurology comes in. That's where what's their emotion emotional functioning comes in, and that's where I think you know I'm going to kick it to Jay here. Uh, you know, he, people like him come in to to help people understand that it's okay to be conflicted in your belief system, and then eventually arrive on something that approaches peace, right?
1: Yeah, and and I think that from from my experience part of the reason um that it was difficult is in the moment when when you are there um uh, you don't have time to process the feelings and the emotion right right, right. Um, that is when you have to as they say you know suck it up and drive on um I, my sergeant major said you know if you stop and look back that's when you die move forward mm-hmm. um And so that goes on for months. And then by the time you get home, you know, like Trey said, I mean, I, I I was fortunate. My dad was a a, a vet himself from uh, in the army Vietnam vet, And, um, you know, he was probably the first one to recognize that something was wrong, even though I had like the medical training. um, You know, I remember telling myself, you know, yeah, you, you feel like crap. Uh, it's understandable. Look where you're at. Look what your daily life is like, man. When I get back home, when I get to my mountains, it's all going to be great. I got home, I got to my mountains and it was terrible. Um, it was worse. And and even though I had the training medically to, to realize something was up, I didn't want to admit it for lots of reasons and and you'll trade and we've touched on them. There's stigma around asking for help. I, I say when I'm out speaking at, at different places, you know, in in Appalachia, we all kind of like, we don't talk about mental health at all, period. Every family, we've got somebody in, in the South. If you're rich, and as my dad would have said, you're a half a bubble off plum, um, you're known as eccentric. But being from Appalachia, where there are very few well-off people, we're just crazy. And we don't talk about our crazy. We keep it in the family. Um, we make excuses for those folks in our family that might be half bubble off plum. Um, mm-hmm. and if you grow up here all that, and then you come back, you're like, Oh man,
0: I don't to be what that I guy. Deal-
1: yeah. Some of what I'm dealing with, man, that, that looks like uncle Bob. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and man, uncle Bob, we've always made excuses for him all my life. Well, I can't tell anybody that I'm dealing with that because then they're going to be like, well, jokes about Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and so like, because we've held it in for so long, it's like it's hard to crack that egg back open. Um, you know, I credit, you know, my wife is a saint, uh, but and she's also a licensed clinical social worker. And she knew coming in that you know, like I had brought stuff so home. Uh and, and one of the most I guess telling things for me in my journey of realizing like how much my experiences had impacted me and also learning how to take those experiences and help other people was she and I had been married for about six months and, and and periodically I still will have dreams and I will be combative in my sleep. I mean, it's, it's terrible, but my kids are like, if you wake dad up, tap his foot, don't get near him. Um, We've had to teach them that for their own protection. And so that I don't feel terrible if, if I wake up swinging, But my wife looked at me one day and she said, you know, I went to school, I was trained clinically in mental health, and I thought I was prepared. I thought I knew what PTSD was. But it's totally different when you have to live with it. And she looked at me and she goes, and that's just for me. I can't imagine what it's like for you. She's like, I get a break. And, and that hit me. I'm like, wow, you know, like, cause I didn't think about it. I didn't think it was that big a deal because for me, you know, that compartmentalize, I can control every aspect of my life throughout the course of the day. But I think, and this is something that I've kind of heard from other veterans as well for those of us that have been in those situations and that still struggle with those things. Like I can keep myself busy all day long. I cannot not think about it. But when you lay down to close your eyes, You're not at peace. You give up the control.
0: Yeah, you're not at peace.
2: It's it's interesting, kind of, where what I've heard. um, I wasn't married. I got married while in the Marine Corps, but after a lot of other stuff. So I, I didn't, you know, it is what it is. But, anyways, what I've heard a lot from people that they've had talk about the wives and them living with you having PTSD and all that where I've heard the biggest problem with that disconnect between that, that service person and, and their wife is for us, when you're, when you're down range, every day is like groundhog's day. You literally mm. are doing the same thing every single day for a year, whatever, however long. And you wake up and you're basically just doing the same thing over and over and over. You're having the same conversations. You're getting your workouts in you're getting your PT, and you're cleaning your guns. You're doing your patrols. You're getting some chow. You're going to bed. You wake up. You're getting your PT, and you're getting your lift in, whatever it is. And it's it's cyclical every single day. So in essence, for that year or whatever that you're gone, your life is frozen. Nothing. Re- it's, it's every day's the same. And then you come home, and everyone else, your kids are a year older, your wife's mm-hmm. a year older everything in your life is a year older and no offense to a certain extent your friends have forgotten about you you know that they've moved on not saying that you're no longer part, but they've had to live their own life for a year and you come home and like I said in your mind time was frozen and now you're having to jump back into reality and it's like damn you got gray real quick you know or or whatever and you got married or you got a kid and, and in your mind you just were gone for a couple of weeks because it's just this repetitive impulses that can keep do the same thing every day but when you get home and you see everyone's life has moved on that is not the easiest thing to deal with either because now you've got to not only deal with what you've seen done happen been around but then you've got to reconcile the fact that everyone else has moved on with their lives. And that's a whole different transition also.
0: You don't know this, but um, I'm in the back of my head, I'm thinking that everyone in my clinical community needs to listen to what you just said right there. If they want to become culturally competent in dealing with veteran communities, they need to hear that soliloquy right there. The last like three and a half minutes or whatever it was that you, you talked about, being completely isolated from the rest of their social interactions that was gold and i don't know if you're on video right now for the for the listening audience we're doing this on zoom because that's the thing these days um trey's not on a video but jay and i were nodding and smiling and we're like yeah yeah i totally get that no i'm not a veteran um i didn't i didn't serve i just know people who have and I come from a family full of cops but like I've heard these stories before and um the way that you guys drive this home without intent like you're you're not intending to convince the listener right you're just you're just speaking it but it's so impassioned I love it and um and I hope that that people hear this and and um really come to understand that there's a very different culture that goes on in uh, military service uh whether or not you're you're turning wrenches at Fallon Air Base and you never get deployed or you're in Mogadishu or uh, Fallujah and you're you know actually exchanging fire like it doesn't matter what Trey said right there I think is is absolute gold um you're you're away you're you're conscripted you're you're in line you're doing the thing and then you have to return at some point and, and that's the point, right? So we've, we've got folks who return to common life, whatever that means, and they have to integrate whatever that means. How do we, how do we do it? How do we, how do we meet, how do we meet our military veterans where they are and acknowledge without patronizing, without doing the whole, like, thank you for your service thing. And they're like, I didn't want to really like sign up for this or whatever. Uh, Cause I know there's conflict there but how do we actually acknowledge culturally what goes on in a, in a veteran's life broadly without patronizing, without selling them short and, and, and to circle back to the the second amendment community, how do we, how do we acknowledge gun ownership as an integral part of that culture uh, and not just write it off as like, Oh, guns are bad. And, you know your baby killers or whatever. I mean, for me, you know, I think that
1: uh, the thing is, you know, I, I think about Trey saying I was, he was nineteen when when he left. Um, makes me feel old. I was I had finished college. I was twenty one, uh, <laughs> and I was the old guy in my
0: cycle of basic. I'm the uh, young guy in this podcast. Is what I just realized. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be 42 this year. That means you guys are like way older than I am. I am oh, 42, yeah. I'm 43. Oh, oh yeah, so the baby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I think the thing that we we fail to to recognize is like we've got 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds that are going to the furthest reaches of the world and are being asked to make life and death decisions every day. Um, whether that's because they've risen through the ranks to be an NCO at 19 or 20, or, you know, their job is to make sure that that 5 million or $2 billion aircraft um, that's been shot up is patched up, repaired, fully operational and ready to redeploy within 24 hours of coming back from a mission. And know by the way, drones Well, yeah. Yeah. And then, but then we, those, those folks when they transition out, like I do some of this work with college professors, I'm like, you know, you you may have a 24 year old and and you look at them as the, they're, they're considered you know, non-traditional students, but you treat them like you do an 18 year old, man, that kid, when he was not 18, 19 years old was responsible for a piece of equipment that by itself is worth more than half the companies in my entire area. And he was making huge decisions. Don't treat him like a child. Don't treat her like a child. Don't treat them like they are fragile or they are broken. Acknowledge the sacrifices they've made, but also acknowledge the experience, the education, um, all the other things that come along with that, that when you look at most, you know, you've got a, a, a guy or a gal that goes in at 18 if they do an average hitch of four to six years 24 when you get out 20 24 25 um but man they've already lived a lifetime and i think part of where we fall short is we discount all that like oh you were just in the army you were just in the marine corps you know all you did you know like i mean i have a buddy who literally said to me at one point in time he goes man what are you having a hard time with? You were just a medic, Mm. but he had no, no concept of the fact that like, as the medic, I was right there with every one of those 11 B's. Um, and not only was I there with him, I was like doing an additional job where I had to take my attention away from the, the immediate threat and focus on something else. Um, and I think that's a problem that we have, like culturally, we don't acknowledge the experience, um, and we just want to focus on the weaknesses instead of the strengths. You're,
0: um, you're making you. you're, so you're, you're you're making me uh, feel a little guilty right now because I, I worked campus escort back in the day when I was back in college, night, late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, there was a guy named Danny Moore who was uh, honorably discharged uh, ranger. And he worked campus escort with us and he played rugby and whatnot. And we always like kind of teased him. It was like, Danny was a ranger. He could kill you with his pinky. And we totally undersold the fact that what you just described is like, yeah, Danny was 24 and we were all like 20 to 22 or whatever, but he'd lived a lifetime overseas and he probably couldn't kill us with his pinky, but Danny was Danny was badass man, and and he had this quiet, calm coolness about him because he'd seen the world. He didn't he didn't need to get wrapped up in all the sorority, fraternity, political campus BS that most of us were talking about because he'd just already you know resolved to find himself. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, that's uh, I, was,
1: I, I think that is one of the areas that we fall short in, um, you know, and. You know, not just society. I mean, I think I was on a call with you, Trey, where we were talking about, or with the VA, you know, so there, there are times that, you know, um, we do not do a good job of educating those individuals that are there to take care of veterans on how to understand veterans.
2: Yeah, most definitely. I think a lot of it comes down to, and kind of what you were saying, going back into it is the transition. Um, there are a lot of veterans that don't know what the options are. I'll be the first one to admit when I when I cycled out in nineteen ninety eight, uh, my transition was a one day seminar at Camp Pendleton, and I I left that six hour seminar going what. What, what the hell am I going to do? You know, I mean, I knew that I was going to go back to school or I was going to try to, to go back to school, but I had a one-year-old daughter. I was married. I was 23 years old and I had a one-year-old daughter, you know? Um, and sometimes college isn't in the books for some people because you have life and you've got to pay the bills because now you're 23 years old and in 23 in the Marine Corps is an old guy. I mean, let's be honest. Right. You know? In reality, I'm looking back at my daughter now is 23 years old. And I said, my God, I was—I got out of the Marine Corps when I was her age.
0: You're not and old I, enough to have a 23-year-old, by the way, right?
2: I, you know, uh, that's right. I, I, I had her when I was 11. Um, yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but it is interesting. God, you look
0: good for 26.
2: Uh, you know, I, I, I am now, I'm on the 20th anniversary of my 25th birthday. So, yeah, I try to tell people that. But looking at my daughter saying, I got out of the Marine Corps at your age, and I had a kid. I'd been married for two years at that point, and I see some of the stuff that she does as a normal 23-year-old and having a good time in life and, and working and having fun and dating and doing all this stuff, and I'm like, my life was completely different than yours. But it made sense. It made sense to me because, like Jay said, I'd already lived a lifetime and you get out and a lot of these veterans don't feel like there's anywhere to go because unless you're a veteran yourself you don't understand. I can look at someone in the eye and know, oh that dude's seen something. That dude's that dude's had a past life. That dude is not some just random guy. And I think Jay and Jake both can if if you've been around a veteran and you talk to someone depending on the subject they either are very emotional very intense or they're very very quiet there's only those three that i've that i've come to terms with and you know oh okay you know maybe and maybe we we're talking about how does the family or how do people react to that you need to learn how to be able to read people if you if you're a supervisor at a job and you know that one of your employees is a veteran you may not know what they did. You may not care what they did in that military, but you have to understand they've probably done something or seen something or been around something that has changed them in some way. So you have to be able to read people. And if you know there's something, a subject or there's something that's going on and you see a personality change in that person, you have to be able to recognize that. But I think what people don't do is they don't take the time. And, and I don't think you should go ask them, hey, man, everything okay? Is, is uh, Did you see something you want to talk about? I, I, I wouldn't want anyone to ever ask me that. But just knowing to sit there and say, can I, that kind of just nod at them, hey, I'm here. you know, I'll t- A nod. Sometimes it sounds weird, but I can look at someone and I just say, I just want to nod my head, bro. You know, hey, I, I got you if you need me type thing. And that means as much as anything else saying, I don't want to talk about it unless you want to talk about it. But if you want to, I'm always here. And I think that that's the biggest thing is some people either do nothing to find out what's going on with that person or they push too much. Um, and pushing too much can be just as, as, as detrimental as not asking, you know, Hey, do you need help? Do you need someone to talk to you? Yeah. But those will continue. Why don't you talk about it, man? Why don't you talk about it? It'll, it'll, you'll feel better if you get off your chest. No, dude, I, I don't want to, you know. I think that there is a fine line, but that's 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 where I think people need to do is maybe learn how to read people and, and figure out what's the best way to approach each individual. I don't think there's an answer, a blanket answer.
0: Do you agree with that, Jay?
1: Yeah, <sighs> uh, I mean. <laughs> complicated. It, it, it yeah. is complicated because, I mean, I think we do have to learn to – to recognize some of the standard warning signs when somebody's in distress, uh, emotionally, mentally, um, we have to be willing to have hard conversations, but there's a difference in being willing and knowing how, um, I don't claim to, again, to be the expert on any of it. Um, I can just tell you, I know that like we have to dispel certain myths, you know, around the discussion of suicide, around the discussion of mental illness, um,
0: Like if you come to counseling, we're not going to take your guns because you're struggling.
1: Yeah, Yeah. that's a big one. And, I mean, you know, I I wish I had kept count over the years, the number of times that I have had um, that specific conversation with veterans, um, that that was their fear. That was – and whether it was legitimate or whether it was an excuse – Um, that was what they expressed to me in the moment as causing their hesitation to come in and just talk. And I'm not talking about swapping war stories. I'm not talking about digging into, to trauma. You know, I don't, none of that just come in and have a conversation. And, um, you're talking about
0: being vulnerable, just like being honest, like, like, hey man, I'm I'm struggling. I'm in a dark spot. Like, we don't need diagnostics. We don't need war stories. Like you said, it's just like let's be human to human. Are you you good?
2: And, and I think that. Oh, go ahead, Trey. I was going say that's the before you. Was, that's the biggest step. Sometimes is making that mental decision, saying I got to go talk to somebody. You know, that's huge. Go ahead, Jake. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I mean, and I think that like, we have not done ourselves any favors, um, you know, and and again, I'm not trying to get political here. Uh, and this is me, Jay talking as Jay and no, in no way expressing a viewpoint for the department of veterans affairs. Um, but I look back at some of the decisions that were made previously, um, where, you know, and, and Jake, you, you know, that, uh, you know, folks can be deemed incompetent for all kinds of reasons um, when we're talking about like social security, yeah, which,
0: which is, which is a, a, an administrative travesty. Like they, that's yes. a policy wonk. It's, it's, and it's, yeah. But I think that's one of the places we shot ourselves in the foot.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, because I can tell you within the veteran population, it did not take a hot minute for that to get out. Right. Um and and, and I had folks that I had been seeing that refused to come back. Um, that sucks. and you know, so it's like, we, we have to be willing to understand how we have conversations, how we have relationships, how we make it clear up front with the folks that were there to help. Um, like, we're, we're here so you can have somebody to, to confide in. Now, there will come a point in time that we may have to, um, you know, not hold everything in confidence. But the one thing that we will hold in confidence like, I'm, I'm not going to go talk to my supervisor about how many veterans I see that I know own firearms uh, because it has nothing to do with their treatment. Yeah. Now, if I felt that they were in imminent danger of harming themselves or somebody else. I'm going to have that hard conversation. That's uh, a
0: that's a, a big public relations campaign that we're continuing to fight, which is, you know, among law enforcement personnel as well, where it's like, dude, it's okay to struggle, and we know you can still do your job. Like, right? Like, that's, that's a PR message that has to get out.
1: And
0: that goes all the way into the military. I mean, if you think there
1: weren't guys that that I was <laughs> deployed with that were thinking and I'm trying to watch my, my language. (laughs)
0: Well,
1: no, just, just simply like the fact of like, man, it would be just so much easier just to check out right now. And I've got the the means to do it. If you think there are people every day in a combat zone, having thoughts like that, well, we're, we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, but we don't talk about it. We just move on. Um, but we have, to, we have to figure out a way to have that conversation. And, and I agree with Trey, we have to do it in a way that's not intrusive. And sometimes it is just saying, like, man, I don't know that you're where I'm at or where I was at, but I have probably been pretty close to where you're at. And, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel is not always a train.
2: Yeah. That's there's that great story that a guy falls in a hole and he's yelling up through the road. Hey, anybody help anybody help. And a guy throws a ladder, but the ladder doesn't make it all the way down and all this different things are throwing water down the hole. And all of a sudden this dude jumps in the hole. He's like, what are you doing? He goes, I heard you needed help out of the hole. And he goes, yeah, but you know, you're stuck down here with me. He goes, yeah, but I've been here before and I know the way out. And it's a powerful, powerful story that, um, you know, and, and I, I'm sure you guys have heard it. I, when I, when I talk to guys all the time and I'm by no means a clinician, uh, I I'm not medically trained at all, but I, I have people reach out to me through email and say, man, I, you know, thanks for your story or thanks for talking or thanks for listening. I've got a story, you know, I'm, hell yeah, man. Call me 24 seven. I have people call me at three o'clock in the morning one time about a month ago. And it was the greatest conversation we ever had That's about three minutes. They just wanted to say, man, I just listened to your podcast, and I appreciate you. I'm good now. And I was like, man, I didn't even know. I mean, this guy,
0: I've never met him in person. Man,
2: that's awesome. Yeah, it was incredible. But, you know, I think what it comes down to is however it has to happen, I don't know. You guys are a lot smarter than I am, but I think that kind of what Jay and and you and Jake were both talking about is – and that's kind of what we're trying to do is figure out a way. How do we get the message out there that there are people out here that are willing to just talk, no judging, no reporting. There will be nothing written down. It's just two dudes talking and maybe we've had similar stories or we've been through some of the same stuff or uh, I might've been there 10 years before you did, but we shared some of the same sand or whatever. And, and sometimes that's really what it comes down to is trying to find a way to let people know that you're not going through this alone. There is a darkness in people's minds, but we have the light and there is a way out of that hole if you just trust us. And I think trust is a big key. I don't know what you guys had to think about that, but I would, I would think that trust is a big key that we have to let them know you can trust us.
0: Well, honestly, I think, I think that it- what you touched on there with the trust like that's also part of the PR campaign right and i don't know how it's going to be constructed if it's going to be you know bought and paid for ads on the tv or whatever but what we have to do as clinicians is communicate that there's a there's a safe and safe space has been co-opted which is total crap but this is a safe space for you to talk right you come into my office here in Reno, Nevada, or Sparks, Nevada, or wherever I happen to be, or if I'm virtually talking to you online in Atlanta, Georgia, like you're 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 safe here, right? Like full trust and confidence. And I think that for whatever reason, that's been bastardized, and I don't know how it happened that clinicians ended up being um, cast as like this this untrustworthy. Bunch of people who are not to be uh, infused with your your experiences because they're going to somehow pick up the bat phone to the government or whatever. Um, we have we have laws and ethics and ethics woven into laws and all sorts of things that that don't allow specifically don't allow that to happen. But human to human, it's just not in our character to go like squealing to, to other people. I don't I don't tell my wife about clinical sessions like it's just it's none of her business it's not it's not their story to share with her um and and i have to be well trained enough to know that i leave at the office right so like as a clinical community we need to do that too we need to do a better marketing campaign to say like look you come into session and and i never swear on this podcast and i'm going to now but your shit dies here like that's it like it you you dump whatever you want, whether you're you're um drinking too much or you got a coke habit that your wife doesn't know about or um your wife your your kids skipping school and you you don't know what to do about it. Like I'm not I'm not telling anyone. Unless again, like Jay said, you're you're an imminent threat to yourself or others. And I mean imminent, imminent, imminent. Like you're gonna walk out that door and go walk into a bus. Um then I'm gonna do something. But until you prove me otherwise, I'm just going to assume you're going to be safe when you leave my office. And, and our clinical community has a, a, a responsibility to bear to go show that to the public and stop somehow purporting that we're just going to like send you to the hospital or you're going to have your rank removed or like we're going to tell your command staff or whatever it is. It's, it's just not true. You're struggling. You're ailing. We're going to help you through it. Um, because if you couldn't recover, then my profession would cease to exist. And if you were somehow permanently disabled, then you yourself have a responsibility to own that anyway and not, and not report back to duty. Right.
1: And and I was going to say, I think one of the things too, that, that those, I mean, and this is, again, you'll hear me say this all the time. Like I'm the expert on one thing. Okay. And that's myself. You and so I think one of the things that is off-putting too is you walk into a room, and it's like we're going to throw all these things at you, you suggest- to fix you. Yes, to fix you rather than sit down, human to human, have a conversation, and and do some like exploration. Like, what do you do to feel better? What do you think you could do? Like, and I, I go just to tie into this like lethal means and and the kind of talk that we need to have, um, when we're very prescriptive, you know, we all know that if, if I tell you what to do, if I give you a plan, the likelihood that you will follow that plan is dramatically lower than if we work together. And I say, you tell me what you think would work and how can we work together to put that into place. And we need to understand that when somebody comes in, even if they're struggling with depression or PTSD or anxiety or whatever, there's lots of areas of their life that they've mastered and they know what they can do in order to diminish those symptoms. Sometimes they just need a little help figuring it out. And and that comes through conversation, like mutual back and forth more so than, well, let me tell you how that works for me. Let me tell you how to fix you because every time that, in my recovery that someone has told me how to fix me. It's lasted about a week. Yeah, But when people have partnered with me or pointed out the fact like, dude, yeah, you, you may struggle with X, Y, or Z, but man, you knock it out of the park on A, B, and C. How can we incorporate A, B, and C into X, Y, and Z so that those things aren't as impactful on your life? Because you are rocking it in part of it. Look at what you have accomplished. Again, focus on the strengths, the things that people have done over time. You know, I get veterans that come in all the time and like, I, you know, I, I can't do this, I can't do that, I've never been able to do. This. I'm like, dude, man, look at what you did by the time you were 23. Right. Like, seriously, yeah. you know, I mean, but. Like, by the time you were 23, you had mastered more skills, and by the time you're 40, you've probably forgotten more things than
0: most people will ever know. And by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and your therapist is dwelling on the negative, fire them. Find somebody new, brother. We work for you, not the other way around. Yes, sir.
2: I think it's interesting that both of you are, are touching on, and I love what Jay said. I, I'm the expert in one person only, and that's me. And I think that there's a lot to be said, though, that there are a lot of people that aren't even an expert on themselves at at some point in their lives where they don't even realize that they've changed. In their minds, they're living a normal life, but everyone else around them has noticed he's distanced himself. He's closed everybody else out. And I think that that's hard to even, for that veteran to sit there and say, they probably don't even realize it sometimes. Uh, and, and that's hard. So I think that, you know, if if you're, fit, if you're out there and, you're, and you don't feel like you're struggling, but you know something's maybe wrong or you think, oh, everyone's just always hounding me. Everyone's always just driving me nuts and bothering me. They may not be hounding you. They They might be trying to tell you, hey, we are all noticing that something is a little off. And don't just discard that. If, if everyone's telling you that something, everyone's asking you all the time, are you okay? Then they're noticing that you don't seem to be okay. And maybe we need to open our eyes and say, how do we approach this person to let them know we're worried about them when they may not even realize that something's up? And that's, that's something that I struggle with because I can see when people are struggling, but in their minds, everything's good. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I don't know how to talk to someone and say, look, bro, I don't think you realize, but you know, and maybe you guys have a great way that I can learn because I don't know how to do that.
0: There, there's a clinical concept uh, where you help people move through stages of change and the stages of change are um, pre-contemplation, which is uh, you, you don't know that there's a problem. Uh, contemplation, you know there's a problem, but you're, you don't know what to do about it uh preparation which is you know there's a problem and you want, maybe want to do something action which is self-explanatory and then maintenance where you've you've completed the the issue and you've changed right you've, you've effectively changed and you're maintaining it and there's two outliers there which is one is relapse which brings you back to somewhere along the continuum and then uh, denial where you're actively resisting the idea that you need to make change and i teach this in a different way it has to do with uh pooping yourself and whether or not you smell your own poop. Um, But the idea is that like some, sometimes people are in pre-contemplation and they don't know that they need to make change, but everybody else in their life needs to make change. And there's an old uh, adage in the substance abuse community that talks about like, you know, if you run into like, you know, an asshole one day, uh, he's probably an asshole, but if you run into five assholes, you're the asshole. Um, So the idea is that like, if everybody's telling you the same thing, you need to, You need to figure it out. Well, the question is that Trey poses like, how do you help the person become aware of that? Right. How do you, how do you move them through the stages of change? One great gift that I was given through grad school is the preface. I wonder, I wonder if maybe that way you're not telling the person what's up. So that they're, you're eliciting their defensive response, their, their fight or flight. And I'm putting, you, you guys in the listening audience can't see this, but I'm putting in the middle of my brain where the amygdala exists, where you reflexively, defensively respond with um, some sort of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to hear that, right? But if you say, I wonder if it circumvents that fight or flight res- reflex to say, I wonder if maybe um, you're a little more down than you normally were. You're just wondering. It's, it's it's disarming, right? You're you're wondering. You're not you're not asserting. But you go, "Hey, are you okay?" Yeah, I'm okay. Hey, are you depressed? No, I'm not depressed, right? Uh, so you say, "I wonder if."
2: Almost make yeah. it to where it's
0: their idea to talk about it. Almost. That's precisely it. And I'm teaching you and the rest of the audience to be junior clinicians right now, which <laughs> yeah. thrills me to no end you know Trey was talking about folks not recognizing
1: um I mean with all the training I had at the I was at my worst like deepest darkest I didn't recognize it um and all it took was I'll just you know I'll share it you know I was when I said earlier my wife was a saint let me preface that that's my this is my second wife she's a saint um um Yeah. So I had had gotten out of the military, had my daughter gotten divorced, um, and was just living crazy. Um, and didn't realize that I was living crazy and, and just doing ridiculous stuff, man. Um, and my dad, my, my, my father, who he's, he passed away about, um, it's coming up on four years ago. Um, he had been married previously before my mother, and he lost his wife to suicide shortly after he got out of the military. Um, one day I had come tearing into the driveway at their house on my motorcycle. Um, wore a fake helmet to fool the cops because I'm young, dumb, and bulletproof and helmets suck. Um, and as I was getting ready to leave, my dad just walked out toward the bike with me and he goes, I buried my wife. I don't think I could handle burying my son. You talk about a kick in the stomach, man. Um, I was going to use another anatomy part, but man, that, that hit. He wasn't saying anything about me. Like, he wasn't saying, man, are you okay? But he told me right then and there what he could not handle. And it was like, dude,
0: what are you doing? And what he communicated
1: was that he loved you. Yeah, I mean, he yeah, like what the heck are you doing, man? Wake up! And it was effective. Um, it worked, man. It it was the kick in the tail that I needed to say, man, you are stupid. Like you are stupid. You got a kid. You got parents. Um, you got people that actually want to see you be successful. But I needed somebody else to reach me in a point where they didn't say, "Like, man, you're screwed up. You're doing crazy stuff." Um, because I would have been defensive. I would have been like, "Man, my life let me live it." Wasn't it judgmental. Yeah, I'd have been like, "It my my life doesn't affect you." But in that moment, he showed me just what it impact my life had on him.
0: Wasn't judgmental. And he also validated what you were doing. And he, it, it doesn't come across that way. It's like, "Hey, I get that you want to speed, uh, but also consider these other people. He's like, I don't want to bury my kid. And you were like, Oh, like yep. there was no judgment there. It was him stating his own position and communicating in an emotional way, not a logical or judgmental way. And I, I think we can, take a lot from that. Honestly, Trey, I think you were going to say
2: something. No, I I was just listening. No, that's, I mean, that's something that, um, there's, there's no way that you couldn't have absorbed that and said, Hmm, no matter how un, I don't know how to put this how okay you think you are, you hear a father or a loved one, a sister, a, a wife, a mother, someone that you respect and you care for. Like you said, not directly, not saying that you're screwed up, but saying I don't think I can handle bearing a child or bearing someone else. I think that um you know that that's that's tough because I think at some point everyone, and you guys used the word earlier, the vulnerable, I think everyone's vulnerable. We just got to figure out how to chip away at that outer cord. Sometimes it's just direct, like you said. Um, Sometimes that's what people need to hear. Sometimes you have to finesse people. And that's why I'm glad I don't do what you guys do, because I I don't know if I have the personality uh, to do that. I don't think I have, I like to think I'm a good person, have a good heart, but I don't think that um I could do that. I, I I don't. And that's so, that's
0: so Trey, I'm I'm gonna recruit you into the fold. And here's how I'm gonna do it. <laughs> right. Um my good dear friend and mentor, Christian Conti. And if you guys don't know about him, you should look him up, C-O-N-T-E. He's got a book called Walking Through Anger. He's got a few books, but but that's the, the newest one. And it's talking about uh his yield theory. But Christian Conti said to me once uh if a human being has done a thing it is therefore human nature therefore you being a human have the same nature meaning the capacity to do anything that any other human being has done so that runs a risk you can do great evil and you can also do great good so just because you know, Jay and I work in the mental health practice um, doesn't mean that Trey can't. It means that he absolutely can. Um, he's just got to find his own way to do it. It won't look the same, and that's fine. Um, we got to be mindful of the, the temptation to, to do great evil, because that also lies within us. And Carl Jung, uh, one of our great forebears of the profession, talks a lot about if you don't embrace what he calls the shadow, of your psyche, of your mind, uh, you're, you're likely doomed to fall into it. So we want to acknowledge that we can do great, terrible things, um, but we also can do great beneficial things. Um, Therefore, Trey, I invite you to uh, join us on this quest to help others. And I think you can actually do it. And the way that you get into vulnerability is become vulnerable yourself and I think one of the overarching themes that I've noticed throughout um, malehood, as I will call it, because it's, you know, it's veterans, it's cops, it's firefighters, it's attorneys, it's all, it's all sorts of people, sports figures, uh, uh, weak equals bad. And it's not true. Weak actually uh, is a natural byproduct of being a human. So neurologically, emotionally, you don't get a choice over whether or not you feel something. That is weakness. When you don't have a choice, it's it's weak. You're weak. You're, you're compelled to obey whatever your neurology tells you. So if the environment flashes something in front of you and you feel something, you don't get a choice. What you do have a choice in is how much and how long you feel that thing. There's where you find your strength. So we need to stop with this narrative that weak equals bad. Because when you when you equate weak equaling bad, every time you feel something from the environment flashing in your Neurology, you go. Oh my God, I'm sad, or I'm ashamed, or I'm I'm uh, I'm depressed. And it's, uh, therefore I must be a bad person. Well, it turns out so so is excitement and joy and surprise and all the all the fun things we like too. Right? You don't have control over that those either. Uh, it Doesn't mean you're a bad person. What it means is that you have to obey what your developmental psychology is telling you, which is respond to the environment. If you feel fear respond in kind if you feel surprised respond if you feel sadness respond it doesn't mean you're bad and i think we need to knock that out of like male psyche because we've said we've we've for for too long we've told our kids that uh if they feel sad if they feel ashamed if they feel scared that they're bad people and they're not uh they're just simply conditioned to respond to environment and they should do so mindfully not at a reflex. So welcome to the profession, Trey. Um, I'm going to teach you how to be a junior clinician in no time and uh, you can, you can validate people's emotions and uh, move forward knowing that we're not bad for feeling out of control. We are just humans.
2: Yeah, it's this, uh, And I think that that's where a lot of people are. I think a lot of people, we talked about the chaos earlier. Mm A lot of people don't understand that sometimes a little chaos is okay.
0: No, it's good. It's good. Uh, Fear fear is okay. Like fear is absolutely necessary. And a little bit of anxiety is good because it makes you study harder for the exam or like study the film for the next uh, football game or like try harder. Like too much fear paralyzes, right? Too much anxiety is bad. No, so like chaos is, House yeah, is good. It tells us to order.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think that you just hit on something there. One of the things that we have, um, I think we're failing people, um, is by not letting them know that, you know, some anxiety is healthy. You mm-hmm. know, it, te- it keeps us from doing, or hopefully making stupid decisions sometimes, mm-hmm. um, And I think that where we run into a lot of problems or things that I've seen over the years is where people think that like anxiety in general, period, any is terrible. So they try to medicate it away.
0: Anger, anger is the same way. It's like, don't be angry. It's like, no, 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 no. Anger is a motivator to go make change. Like we want anger. We just want to respond thoughtfully to anger not like road rage to anger where we're waving our pistol out the window and getting arrested for it. It's what you do with it. Correct. That that is that is the important thing. What you
1: do with any emotion is the important thing. Um and, and I think that we do need to and again, this for me goes back to focusing on people's strengths. Um, use those things to be motivating factors. Um, rather than being like, Oh man, you got anxiety, that's terrible. Like what you know yeah. what I, are I you think, doing with it? Yeah, it's like the I've had people over the years that are you know, like instead of, again, just because of anxiety or anger or whatever, all the things that you can't do anymore, even, even veterans that I've worked with that, that have PTSD. Um, it is almost like a death nail because they have been told, Oh man, this will inhibit you in all these different ways. And they buy into that and it's paralyzing. Um, Rather than saying like, yeah, I may have to make modifications in the way I do things.
0: Um, for or, me, or holy crap, I went through this thing and it made me this thing that I am now and now I can use that to teach others or influence my, my decision making from this point forward and they use it as a strength. Right, because so many people didn't go through that thing. Like I'm so unique. It's like I'm so unique. I'm beaten down. It's like no, dude, you have something that nobody else has to bring to the table. Yeah, And, and
1: even going back like Trey, you saying you can't work in, you couldn't work in the field, or you don't work in the field, whatever. Let me tell you, brother, there is nothing special about me or what I do. And this is the thing I try to tell people all the time when they're like, "Man, I could never." go talk about sure. You can put your dagum pride in the trunk brother. And say I mean, stand up and go, look, I have times where when I wake up in the morning, I do not want to get out of bed. But what I do is I put one foot on the floor and I make the other one follow. And if I can do it, you can do it. Because again, not a daggum thing special about this guy.
0: And yeah. Trey, so let me pile on because you're, you're, our, uh, you're, we're, we're flagellating you right now. Um, so if I said, I, I just, I just can't, I, I can't chip to that hole for those of you in the listening audience who don't know trade, trade teaches golf. Um, if I said, no, no, I just, I just can't chip. I'll never, I'll never learn how to chip. I I putt and, and I drive and that's it. I can't chip. What would you say?
2: Um, I would basically tell them that you're never going to do anything that you don't think you can. Uh, that's the biggest thing is is before you take that first step into greatness, you had to believe you can be great, and um, so yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's the right answer. You're looking nah, you for. nail
0: it. You nail it. You 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 totally <laughs> you totally finished my sentence for me. Good job.
2: Well, I, I, I'm here to do that. Made my I, point. I, I think it's interesting that um, when it comes down to kind of what people were talking about right What we're talking about right now about people is is. It comes from all different sides. You have the side that is the outside and the inside. If you're the person that's on the inside, you're actually the person this is happening to, you've got to break down walls. You have to let yourself be vulnerable. More importantly, you have to realize that, like you said, you're not the only person that's ever been through this. There are people that have been through this that can help you get out of that hole. There, there is a doorway just might have to have the secret handshake to find it. But there are people that know that handshake and they're there to teach you. If you're in the outside looking in, you know, make sure, make sure that they know that you're available. And like I said, that's, that's the issue that I have is I want to be available to everyone. I tell everybody, look, I'm always here. If you want to talk, I'm always here. If you ever want to call it at three o'clock in the morning, that's cool. But I, I, I feel awkward of saying, You know, I noticed there was a person who was struggling in my, literally in uh, my live show, someone that was talking negatively about a month ago in the live audience. And I broke down. Uh, He was talking about how he's a former Marine as well. And and I I, I, I will admit that I do cry, Um, but I broke down and started bawling live on my show. And this is a former Marine that said that his best friend died in his lap. And the only reason why he joined the Marine Corps is they went in the buddy program and he talked him into going to the Marine Corps. And then he had to watch him die in his lap and couldn't come home and face his family. And he was struggling and he's a firearm guy. And so I I broke down because I was like, Holy, this is, this reached, this is live. And I, there's no getting around this. We started having conversation and I, I, I said, please. Here's my phone number. Please call me, text me, let me know. The next day, I sent him a, a text and I said, "Just checking in. How you doing?" And he said, "I just um, there's a great organization that uh, Jake you probably know and Jay you may know of uh, Sarah Joy Albright and Genevieve Jones up in Pennsylvania called Hold oh My Guns. Guns. Phenomenal. He contacted Genevieve that night." And start taking the process. He's like, I'm not really sure until I get to the VA, get my medication straightened out. I need help. And he was given a path to forego his guns for one week. Cause he knew that that next Wednesday, he was going to go down to the VA to hopefully get his medication straightened out. And it was about 10 days total from when he released them to the day he got him back into this very day. He's a different person. And, um, that's powerful right there is for someone to sit there and say, I have a problem, but I need help and I can't do it alone. And I worry that I might hurt my family. That's like the ultimate, like that was crazy. And that happened live and I'm sitting there crying because I didn't know, I, I don't know what to tell this guy except for tomorrow's a new day. I mean, and, and, and that sounds so cliche. I'm sure you guys go through it all the time, but you know, you fight the fog, each day get through that one day so that nine months later you get to come home. And I told him, said, don't worry about what happens next month, brother. You get through today. And tomorrow morning, when you wake up, you say, I want to get through today. And then tomorrow morning you wake up and say, I want to get through today. And then next thing you know, it's been three months and life's okay. And it's, it's kind of cool to see that guy. That was the most powerful thing I've ever seen is live on screen he felt comfortable enough that people in that live audience and myself to literally tell a story break down and do something about it in a two and a half hour process and that was that's something something i'll I'll never forget what
0: uh, trey what in god's green earth made you think that you couldn't do what we do as mental health practitioners then
2: i I honestly you
0: literally did it you saved a man's life
2: okay well i'll say this i I'm not sure that I could mentally handle a day to day where and you'd said before well how
0: how'd you handle that then hold on because like, this is important because I think there's a lot of people listening who who have the same question, right like, oh yeah, there was that one time that I walked my friend through this thing right well how'd you handle it? The answer is, I, I don't know. I guess I just listened
2: and, and, and told him that uh, – I, I get I mean, I get. It, but I, I
0: guess the answer is – The audience can't see this because we're on Zoom, but yeah. Jay and I are like <laughs> nodding and putting our hands up like, yeah, duh. <laughs> and you didn't carry it on as your own. It's not your pain to carry. Yeah. That's uh, it. You, you validated the guy. You were there for him. You were there afterward. And then you let him live his life. You didn't try to live it for him.
2: Yeah, and I, and I guess where I would – I mean, I would love to think that mentally I could. I think I probably could, but I, I guess where I was coming from when I said, I don't know if I could do it, is every day knowing that conversations that I have or uh, if I was in y'all's shoes is going to change someone's life. I don't know if I have that in me. Honest to <laughs> God, it sounds weird. what well, a body.
0: human being that's, has done it.
2: That's a lot of pressure.
1: (laughs) If a
0: human being has done it, it is not for human nature. Uh, I
1: I was going to say, I've always, um, my philosophy is, I've never, I have never changed another person's life. Um, I do not have the ability to change
0: someone else's life. I'm shaking my head and you can't see that on Zoom, but I'm shaking my head. You're right. We don't.
1: Yeah. What I have the ability to do is, to be there with that individual and walk with them through their journey Mm -hmm. and kind of like, you know, your analogy or your story about the whole, man, I'll I'll walk with you through your journey and we'll come out the other side. Um, now, and you're going to grow through it. I'm going to grow through it. Your journey will not look like mine. Mine will not look like yours. Um, but when we get to the other side and I have had people be like, man, you know, you really did like, so much, like I couldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And I'm like, no, man, no, you absolutely could because you did all the daggone work. All I did, I'm like, I'm a cheerleader, man. I'm here to like encourage you to make like to allow yourself to be vulnerable, to put yourself out there. You yeah. know, um, you, you talk about he 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 called an organization that would help him with firearm storage. That's huge. Yeah, um, just encouraging people like so we all 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 three of us and we know the lethality of a firearm um and and i think that like just being there to encourage someone and say it's okay if you need um somebody to come and put some distance between you and those for a while how do you think you could do that um that's that's part of the the encouraging part of the journey is to say like hey man you know i had to i had to have a contract with contract unofficially like with my dad, you know, like an agreement, you see me doing something stupid. You go to my house, take whatever you want. And when you feel like I'm ready for it, well then we'll talk. Um, you know, and and I, it's just like, I think part of the other issue, and and this goes back to something we talked about previously, which is where we fail veterans is we as mental health professionals, we want to fix. Sometimes we want to, again, Mm -hmm. be prescriptive rather than letting them utilize the skills that they have to navigate their own recovery.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's okay for me to crap all over the idea that we didn't help somebody. We did help somebody like, it's okay to say, I helped you. You saved a life because if you weren't there that moment with the things you said, he might be dead. That's, that's fine what we don't want to do is take credit for the person's decisions, right? Um, Cause then we have to take credit for all their bad decisions too. So I don't want that. Um, and I'm, and I'm a little tongue in cheek in saying that, but the idea is that all we can do is shed light and yes, we can take credit for shedding light and being there. And if you hadn't had the podcast, you hadn't had the live radio show, you hadn't had, you yourself had not been vulnerable enough to cry with that guy. Uh, which by the way, awesome. Don't ever apologize for crying. That's, that's amazing. Um, Then maybe he didn't have the, the permission, I guess if I could choose a word to be vulnerable enough back to seek that help. So of course you had a, a role in that. Of course you should own credit. And we want to invite other people to take the same role and to have the same credit in helping guide others. Yes they're going to make their own choices. You can have all the podcasts and I can have all the podcasts in the world that, you know, invite people into this, but ultimately if they choose to give us the finger and, you know, make their own decisions, well, that's fine. Um, but to deny that we had an influence is ludicrous. Otherwise we would, we just wouldn't do what we did. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd go s- serve ourselves and not help humanity. So I l- listen, like you guys have been more than gracious I want to honor your time. Um, It's uh, 5.30 in the Pacific. I know it's 8.30 in the East where Jay is and 7.30 in the Central where Trey is. Um, we all have lives and families we need to get back to. And I just appreciate the heck out of you guys. Um, I always joke at the end. It feels like I'm, you know, like giving some eulogies, like any last words, um, before we stretch your necks or whatever it is, but like, if you could give something that, uh, the, uh, the audience could take away, what's, what's the thing that you want to compel everybody to consider? Dead silence. Hey, Jay. Hey,
1: Jay. <laughs> I was going to say I was waiting on tree. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it's just like, I'm trying to think of how to, how to put this or how it was put to me. Um, you know, somebody asked me once, um, what do you do when you're trying to help some, or you're working with somebody or you're talking with somebody about recovery? How do you get them to buy in? Like, how do you make them want it? I was like, y- you can't. Y- you can't. Um, but what you can do is you can offer to stand there and tell them, like, like I'll hold hope for you until you're ready to take it. And when you're ready to take it, you come and get it. And we won't walk through it. We'll run through it. Um, and just let them know that it doesn't matter. Like If they're not where you're at, if they're not ready in that moment, you're not going anywhere. You're going to be consistent. You're going to let them know that like, it's possible and it's possible for everybody.
0: Craig can't see this because he's not on video and listening. I think he can't see it because they're on audio. I just teared up at the phrase. I'm going to hold hope for you. Thanks Jay for
2: that. I'm going to steal that by the way, honestly, that, that was, that was awesome. I've never, I've never heard anyone put it quite like that. Um, Phenomenal. Um, Man. Yeah. As far as me, what I would have to say is, is if you're a veteran out there, and no matter what you've been through, as minute or as major as you think it very well could be, or as minute as it you might think it has affected you, understand that you're not alone. And there's a stat out there that says that every single day in America, 22 veterans commit suicide. 22 people that serve this flag every day feel that they're alone in some way, shape, or form, and you're not. Um, You've got someone out there that can talk to you every single day. If you're someone who lives with a veteran, don't force that conversation, but be there. And and be, um, how do I put this? Let them know every single day that you're there, um, whether it's to talk or to protect them or to comfort them, whatever. Let them know that you don't think that you have anyone. You've got me. And kind of what, you know, Jay was saying, I'll hold the hope is I'll be your crutch. You know, put your weight on me. I'll hold you up until you're ready to walk again. And there's always someone out there that will help you. And and I think that that's where it is. That from what I hear from the guys and gals is there's a darkness that they feel that no matter what they do, they're alone. You're not. Uh, You will always have people out there that, Uh, know the way to the exit and um, we're going to help you there. So don't be afraid to reach out. There are people there. They're always going to help out. And if you're one of those people that live with them, make sure that you're available all the time to be that crutch for them.
0: I just got teared up again. Thank you, Trey, for doing that. And um, appreciate the passion from both of you. How do people reach you if they want more resources, or if they just want to connect? Jay.
1: Ah, uh, well, I mean, you know, in my real life, I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Right, you're not
0: allowed to advertise that or something, but. Yeah, I mean, you know. How do how do people reach VA resources around the country?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we obviously have the VA Crosses line. If you find yourself in crosses and you're a veteran. Uh, dial across this line press one and it's take you to, um, trained and highly skilled
0: individuals. Um, what's that number? Oh man. You would ask, um, 800-273-TALK. That's it. <laughs> brain, brain, brain farm, man.
1: Too I've, been hitting the head. I've been hitting the head way too many times. Um, but yeah, I mean like we, we have trained folks there that are, that are specifically, you know, we hope trained more to help veterans. Um, as far as, And I'm all throwing a shameless plug here for the Office of Peer Support within the Department of Veterans Affairs. That's what I
0: was hoping for, yes.
1: Um, If you are a vet and you want to talk to somebody um, that may have had some similar experiences, um, every major VA medical center and large community-based outpatient clinic technically is supposed to have a peer specialist or a peer counselor or peer support, whatever, on staff. Um, now there are just about 1500 of us across the country. So you're not going to walk into your local VA outpatient mental health clinic and see a big sign that says, Hey, we've got peer support. But if you're a vet and you want to talk to a peer, ask your outpatient mental health clinic, say, do you have peer specialists? Do you have a peer that I can talk with? Um, And if there is one on site, they will direct you to those individuals to talk with them. Um, If there's not one on site, I strongly encourage you to ask them if they will reach out and find someone for you to talk to. Um, Because that mental health provider, they pretty, I'm I'm pretty well known with, I'm not saying that to be like, oh, I'm full of myself, but like, I'm one of the old dogs in in the VA um, within peer support, and they can figure out how to get a hold of me, and then I can get a hold of you.
2: Bro, Trey,
0: you're you're, you're yeah you 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 are you're you're something of a celebrity. Uh, you were invited to the White House after all. But uh, Trey, you're.
2: Unfortunately, I'm, you know, and it sounds bad, but like the the term YouTuber or social media influencer or whatever are like dirty words these days, and, and that's okay. But <laughs> only yeah.
0: if only if you're blonde and you traveled the seas.
2: That's true. That's true. But uh, I mean, our, our website is ghosttacticalproductions.com. dot com. You'll have access to everything that we're doing, including our podcast, which is the Armed Citizen Podcast. If you want to get a hold of me, you can email me at thearmcitizenpodcast at gmail.com or at ghosttactical at yahoo.com. Um, either way, they'll they'll come to my phone, and um, I can, I'm can. i always here. More importantly, um, you know, the, the biggest thing that we can tell you is, is find someone, whether it's me or Jay or Jake, you know, find somebody. Um, find somebody because 22 lives a day. Is, you know, we're just talking veterans to this, but there's a massive number out there that's not veteran related, but 22 brothers and sisters a day feel they're alone. And I would love to cut that number down to zero.
1: Yeah. Amen. And, and I'll throw, I was going to say, Trey, I'll throw this out there, man. Brother, you got my contact information. Um, yeah, and Jake, same for y'all. If y'all have veterans and you can't find a peer or you can't find somebody that's willing to talk, I do. Not VA work, but I do work on the side, um, and I'm here to talk. I'm here to help. Um, so if you have somebody, feel free to shoot me a message with their information, and I'll get a hold of them. If if that's what it takes, that's what we'll do.
0: This is humanitarian give back. You know what I mean? Like this is this is the difference between activism and action. Uh, people willing to sacrifice themselves to help others and I appreciate you both. And uh, this has been just a super powerful podcast. Uh, for me personally, I've learned a lot. Um, it's probably the longest podcast I've done. Um, thank you both. And it means a ton. So uh, if you want to reach out to me, uh, info at Naganotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org. Um, and I'll hook you up with the, with the guys. Um, but in the meantime, As I always sign off, on behalf of the Naga Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you great mental wellness. Take care.